Professor Johan Galton, and he is the Norwegian mathematician and sociologist. He is here to talk about the fall of the American Empire, and then what? And he is also the author of many other publications in this area. Nice to have you with us today, sir. Thank you. Very fine. I hear you fine, but if you could get the volume a little bit higher on your side, it would be beautiful. We will do that right now. As you heard from my opening commentary, there's currently an effort underway led by Monsanto and uh, to make sure that our food in the United States comes from their genetically modified seeds. I've done many different exposés on this phenomena that genetically modified seeds do not increase crop yields, do not give us uh, capacity for feeding the world's uh, hungry. We have more than enough food to feed the world's hungry. It's just misallocation of resources that allow one million people to go to bed hungry each day. And in the United States, you wouldn't know it by any of the comments on television, either by Keith Obman, who hasn't touched on this subject, or Rachel Maddow, or anyone on the right. But we have uh, on the downside, the low side, 12.9 million American children who are not getting adequate nutrition, not enough food, and the high end is the latest figure, 17.6 million. We also have 40 million Americans on food stamps, and that's supposed to go to 50 million within the next year. We have, and I'm giving this just as a few points so we can take off from here, and then we have a government that says that the interests of the corporate um, in the corporate marketplace, the globalized mindset is what should dominate and lead all of our other directions. So we have a stimulus bill that's not stimulating the economy for the average person. Unemployment is increasing. And yet, for those in the financial market and those in the military-industrial complex market, those in the energy production market, and those in the big agri-market, they're doing extremely well because they're subsidized. And yet the average person is struggling, and yet every time they turn around, either Democrats or Republicans are telling them, trust us, everything's fine, uh, we're going to be rebounding, and we're going to see that our children have as nice a future as we had. And I simply do not see this based upon the economic and social models we currently have in existence in this country. Would you please, uninterrupted by me, Take your time, since there's no commercial interruptions, and lay out what you see as the underpinning, the progenitor that's allowed America to get to the point where we are having to lie to the American people about the truth of how serious our crises are. Well, I certainly share your view on Monsanto, and I've had occasion to see it in some detail in India. And know a little bit about the food situation around the world. But let me try to answer your question. What is it? What is it that drives the United States of America into this situation? So I'm used to see imperialism in terms of the interplay between four factors cultural, economic, military, political. You can take them in almost any order. So it's the interplay across borders synergy, how they support each other, which is the crucial thing. And one little point, which is quite important, is that if you talk with American professors, they, you will have excellent specialists on what they call economics, you will have military experts, you will have experts on what they call hegemony, the exercise of political power, 
you will have a lot of people who talk about philosophy, theology, but it almost never comes together. It's quite interesting that in the brilliance of U.S. Academy, holistic thinking, making things come together so that you see the totality, is a very weak point. But if you don't mind, let me start with the cultural angle, U.S. exceptionalism. The idea, let us say, from 1620, the idea of being an anointed nation, a chosen people with a promised land, taking over the Jewish metaphor, and doing it because at that time, at the eastern side of the Mediterranean, as pointed out by many, it looked like the Jews had failed, or God had failed them. In other words, the position as the chosen people was vacant. And as we very well know, the pilgrims were in no doubt that they could fill it. And they would not do what they suspected had been the reason why God no longer supported the Jews, namely sex outside marriage. So the Puritans saw themselves as meeting the bill. Now, there is a trend from 1620 to 2010 of exceptionalism that the United States is simply closer to the divine source of authority and legitimacy. And for that reason, ordinary laws do not apply. There is not enough space between God and the United States of America to put in, let us say, United Nations Chartered exceptionalism. But that, of course, is linked to the idea that the U.S. society was extremely successful, proven by the point that so many people were flocking to the USA, which is true, certainly from my country, Norway, for instance, in great numbers around the turn of the century, escaping from poverty to what was beckoning across the Atlantic. Now, they were not worried by the circumstance that the original inhabitants had been killed, driven into reservations, that there had been not only homicide, let us say 10 million in North America, 25 million in South America, but cultural side, destruction of their culture, of the basis for their culture. They were not worried by that. It was a white man's alliance on top of the remnants of the red man and woman and the brown black man and woman. So a pattern was set, and the pattern was set inside the expanding United States from the colonies on the seaboard, west, 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 go west, young man. So, in 1898, United States of America positioned itself into the shoes of a dying empire, the Spanish Empire. And what we got was, of course, in East Asia, the Philippines, after an extremely bloody war, not against the Spaniards at all, but against people living there. They were indigenous, they were Catholics, and between the indigenous and the Catholics, they were Muslims. You find them then annexing Hawaii in the same year after the coup in 1893 against that very fine personality 
the Queen Liliuokalani, who was defined as a pagan and put in prison, where she wrote beautiful poetry. Now, you have, of course, the Puerto Rico-Cuban situation at the same time, in other words, the Caribbean. The Spanish Empire died, and the last commander in the Philippines, Primo de Rivera, came back to Spain and became a founder of the Falange, of the fascist party, that later on had Francisco Franco, who came from the Spanish possession which had been left, a couple of them, in Africa. And we are thinking of the Spanish part of Morocco. So, now you have an empire. And the question is, what do you do? Well, you have a divine mandate. You have a license to kill. And you have from 1812 till 1953 unimpeded victory. You could dictate the conditions, you could extract all kinds of economic value you wanted, be that in terms of resources, be that in terms of cheap labor on the place where you were located, or imported to the U.S. as immigrants, be that as markets, whatever. The military factor became stronger and stronger and stronger. And there was a political ascendancy calling the tune and, of course, doing it the way empires are run, getting an elite, a local elite, that would take care of the people, provided they were well enough paid. And to be elite people in the U.S. empire, as it took shape, was a good living. It was a good life. And I think it could be said that the U.S.A., treated them well, whether they were Filipino elites or Cuban elites or Puerto Rico, which was, of course, halfway integrated into the system, or Hawaiians, although to a large extent by exporting white people, haole, as they are called, to the former Hawaiian kingdom. So I mentioned from 1812, to 1953, unimpeded victory, dictating the terms. Philippines was a colony, otherwise the term empire is more adequate, and Philippines was abandoned as a colony after the Second World War, fought, one says, in the name of democracy, human rights, and out of it came, as we know, 1953, the first time the U.S. Army was not able to win and dictate the conditions, the Korean War. There was no capitulation on the northern part, and there was an armistice line, and I think it's small wonder that Washington hated North Korea and continues doing so beyond any kind of rationality for having put an end to the unimpeded victory. And after that, it goes downhill. And let me just indicate some factors. Using the same list again, but this time maybe in the opposite order. Let's start with the military. We go on to the Vietnam War. 30 April 1975, 
We have the iconic image of the ladder from the helicopter hovering above the U.S. Embassy and people climbing up in despair. And the prediction was, of course, that if the U.S. Army withdraws and the Army of the Republic of South Vietnam should collapse, then you would have infinite civil war and only chaos all over it. Nothing of the kind happened. The Vietnamese knew exactly what they wanted. They unified immediately. And the result has been, to a large extent, a blossoming country, in spite of the stinginess of the U.S. in repairing, for instance, the damage from Agent Orange. After that, it goes on. The U.S. is not going to obtain what they want in Iraq, and they will sooner or later, in all probability, withdraw from Afghanistan the same way they did from Vietnam. Just like the U.S. became irrelevant, largely speaking, in Vietnam, they'll become irrelevant in Afghanistan, which then raises the question, who become irrelevant? Who are the ones who are contributing, shaping the future of Afghanistan? Well, to my knowledge, it is Turkey, Iran, Pakistan, and to some extent Russia and China. They happen to be located right there, around Afghanistan, partly bordering on it, exceptional Turkey. A little bit more close to the heart of the matter, so to speak, than the United States of America on the other side of the Pacific and the other side of the Atlantic. The war on terror? Well, let's be aware of the fact that there are 57 Muslim countries in the world with 1,560 million Muslims. It's a little bit much. The war is seen by them and has partly been seen that way by Washington as a war against Islam. It's enough to remind everybody of the former President Bush use of the highly infelicitous term crusades right after 9-11. Now, having said that, these 57 countries and those 1,560 million are committed to two important things. Not to spread Islam at the tip of the sword, but to defend Islam when trampled upon at the tip of the sword. That's the fourth stage of jihad. Jihad does not mean holy word. It means exerting yourself for the true faith and has three other stages before that. But having said that, I think we are in a situation where the U.S. has gotten entangled into far more than any power in the world could possibly have handled. That's the military factor. Let's go on from there to the political one. I think the basic point about the political one is that all over the world, almost, not absolutely all over, you'll see new forces coming up. It is not that they're economically strong. That is not so important. That's for, excuse me, the expression, journalists. Much more important is that they are politically self-conscious. 
There are eight, nine initiatives now to weave together Latin American countries in something which is inevitable, will come, it's on the agenda. Estados Unidos de América Latina y el Caribe, the United States of Latin America and the Caribbean, 35 countries. I think the person mainly responsible for this is Lula. And the person in the bullseye of the U.S. way of looking at things is Hugo Chavez. Very useful to Lula to have a talkative Chavez to attract attention. Not by that belittling the importance of Hugo Chavez. Having said this, you have moves in East Asia. It's inevitable that sooner or later the country is inspired by Confucianism, Buddhism, and Chinese culture, although they have different philosophies besides that. Namely, China, Japan, the two Koreas, the two Chinas, incidentally, and the three Japans, if you reckon the Northern Territories, and the Ryukyu Islands, also known as Okinawa. And you can safely include in this Vietnam that could play a big bridging role between East Asia and Southeast Asia. Africa, less is happening. Western Europe, Eastern Europe, rumblings. Rumblings. And of course, you have a coalition of the willing. Well, you had that in Vietnam too. And the question is, of course, who will be the first to leave? Well, we know it, Netherlands. Who will be the last to leave? My guess is Georgia, maybe South Korea. They'll be queuing up, lining up like they did in connection with the Vietnam War. In other words, the political, if you will, magic of the USA is gone. How about economics? Well, the world has taken note of what has happened. They know perfectly well where the ground zero of September 2008 was located. The world knows also perfectly well that Islamic banking by and large escaped it, that the Chinese had sufficient domestic demand to overcome it, and that many parts of the world are taking the aftershocks much better than the U.S. And that brings us to the last point on the list of about the divine mandate. Well, there are many who believe in this in the U.S. still, and who would still be fighting, if you will, the moral debate inside the U.S. in order to live up to the demands of their God so that God will support them again. And the U.S. will spend much mental energy on this. Whether they are strong enough to make a military coup, evangelically right-wing, threatening the world, trying to recapture and reverse the sliding empire from decline into fall. I don't know. I simply don't know. I'm not in any way able to have any kind of foresight on that one. But I think the fall is inevitable, not because of what happens in the U.S., but because of what happens outside the U.S. In short, the magic is gone. I appreciate that introductory um, overview. 
We're talking about the fall of the American empire. I am joined with our conversations with Remarkable Minds, Professor Johan Galtung. And uh, now a few points I would like for you to go further in, if you would, please. Please, go uh, ahead. I see part of our delusion uh, being that we believe that as long as people purchase things, the economy goes forward. However, our purchases in the last 10 years have been based upon creating artificial bubbles, whether it's the dot-com bubble, the hedge fund bubble, the equity partnership bubble, the credit card bubble, or the housing bubble. And then, in the same, since the year 2000, more than 5 million Americans have lost their jobs to outsourcing by the same globalist um, free market enterprise mindset to other countries, including China. It has caused China's economy to boom between 9 and 10 percent growth per year, India's to boom, Brazil's to boom also, not because of labor that's gone there, but rather because of opportunity to manufacture goods and services and export them in ways that they had not before, and also acting as a leader, a leading exporter of energy resources, including to China. Now, so the, we're asking the average person, in essence, we realize you're taxed out on your, your, um, and your credit cards. We realize that your uh, property, equity in your property, is probably negligible or underwater at this point in the, st in the state of uh, Arizona, which is one of our major tourist states. It has the largest amount of underwater mortgages in the country. 51% of everyone's home in the state of Arizona is now underwater in their mortgage, meaning their mortgage is worth, uh, their mortgage costs them more than the value of their property. We also have, for the first time, massive amounts of very wealthy Americans walking away from million dollar homes, um, and they're, they're more inclined to walk away than the average person. We have also then told the Americans who are suffering, especially the working middle class and the unemployed middle class or the partially employed middle class, that uh, don't worry, uh, we will protect you. So we have massive intrusions to the military-industrial complex. Almost all of our pro programs uh, are based upon we will win at the end of the day because we have the largest military. We have more 16 different national security agencies. We can do no wrong on this. And the average American has not been told the truth, that the vast majority of all this is redundant. We don't need all this. We could balance the budget. Americans could go back to work if we simply stopped exporting jobs and incentivize the small business person to create jobs within the local environment which they live and to give them some advantage in doing so, much like we would do the advantage we gave to the Wall Street, but not giving any of that advantage to the small business person that, that actually causes 80% of the actual work in the United States. But they've been given no real attention. So people are confused. And what has happened is they've either drawn their, their uh, umbrage towards the left or towards the right. But in the middle is 41% of all Americans today are independent. And of those, a high percentage are progressives, people who really want the truth, are not ideologically aligned, and are looking for solutions, whatever that solution may be, getting, uh, breaking our habits on, on oil and coal and solar and gas and getting towards uh, geothermal and solar and, and wind, even though initially those will cost more, but they are sustainable. And, but the progressives have no political base. None. 
They're not invited in any dialogue. You will never see Chris Hedges. You will never see Gerald Salanti. You will never see the people in the United States or Laszlo from Italy or yourself invited in to sit on the councils uh, that govern by policymaking. So as a result, the people don't hear the voices of reason and hear the voices that would offer them solutions. Instead, they hear only the pundits left and right. And then it's always polarizing. Well, the problem is left. No, the problem is right. So people have simply tuned out. They simply don't like either party. The the vote, uh, the uh, the president's dropping in popularity because he showed himself not to be honest about his real intent. By the way, uh, I did not go against Barack Obama. I went for Ralph Nader because when I looked at Barack Obama's voting record and who supported him financially when he was in the Senate in Illinois and when he was a junior senator, there was King Cole, and he therefore became King Cole's official spokesperson for clean coal, and that's an oxymoron. And, and big oil and Wall Street and the largest bundler of campaign funds for him was not the average person, as we've been led to believe. It was Goldman Sachs. So all you had to do is a little bit of homework, not much, a little bit, and you would have seen the real makeup. This was another Bill Clinton. And yet the Democrats, desperate as they were, and supporting historically some of the most contemptible of people for public office, including um, uh, never saw a massage he couldn't enjoy, um, <laughs> Al Gore, or um, uh, Jonathan John Kerry. You know, it's nice to be a war vet if you're worth $200 million, and therefore you tell people that you're going to do more killing. And I remember watching those debates between uh, uh uh, Kerry and Bush. And I'll kill him. No, I'll kill more. Well, we'll both kill. And I couldn't imagine that the Democrats and liberals were accepting this. And yet we have not allowed ourselves to seek the truth of our own demise. So we are a country that's bankrupt. We have $100 trillion in un, and unfunded or underfunded entitlements. The average person's actual take-home wage is less than what it was 30 years ago. We have people who are counted as employed if they work two hours a week we have people who are desperate, and yet they are not being given attention. So what I see is I see approximately 270 million Americans who are angry, who are not being given any attention, who are not invited into any policy decisions, who are considered only uh, value for what they can buy, but they have nothing more to spend. So then our economy starts to show that outside of the financial markets, that are still bankrupt, if you ask them to put all their uh, chips on the table and say, how much credit default swaps do you have? How much derivative positions do you have? What is the actual liquidity, liquidity of your position? Virtually all of our major banks would be bankrupt, yet they are not required by the Federal Reserve Chairman Ben Bernanke and Timothy Geithner or Lawrence Summers. They are not required to show their actual financial positions. As a result, we're living in this myth in our society that uh, the stimulus program has worked and that the bailouts are working and everything's fine. And we're not. And I see that China will become the major superpower within the next five years. And by the way, I say five years. It may be even shorter because we were told just a year ago that China wouldn't exceed Japan for the next 15 years. Today, as we speak, China just passed Japan and is now second largest economic driving force in the world. They passed Japan this morning. Oh, but that was supposed to be 15 years in the future. Oh, but we were, you know, so every prediction we've been given has fallen on its face. They're not paying attention to a lot of angry Americans, and they better, 
because when you have people who are dismissive of people who do not have a political base and dismissive of people who are poor, marginally poor, middle class or slightly upper class, and the only people you're listening to are academics and the professional class and the entrepreneur class at the higher end of the corporate strata and the financial class, then you are not paying attention to what is important. Those are my thoughts. I'd like yours, please. Okay, let me just throw in some elements there. I've been saying that the U.S. Empire is in bad shape, and you're saying that the U.S. Republic is in bad shape. Those two go together, they reinforce each other. Now, if you look at the printing of money at Fort Knox, and the fact that the U.S. is not publishing M2, the amount of money in circulation, to put it in a simplistic way, we simply don't know what how the quantity is. One is talking about the doubling by sheer printing. That is a money bubble that you can add to the others. And I have in front of me a, next, a paper with 24 experts predicting a major crisis in the value of the dollar during the second half of this year. They're talking about devaluation, 50%, one-third, etc. And some are talking about more than that. Possible. I myself see the basic point as being the gap between the finance economy, let us say roughly measured by Dow Jones index and similar indices, and the real economy roughly measured by GNP growth per capita. There is a gap, and there is a tendency in the U.S. to celebrate whenever the Dow Jones index goes up. Well, it went up to 12,000 by September 2008 and collapsed down to 6,000. It's now climbing up in the lower half of the 10,000s. I would say the crisis is exactly this discrepancy. So what do you do about it? Doing things that one would help. I have spent 10 years of my life in the U.S., been professor at Columbia, at Princeton, and so on, all of that kind of stuff. The academics that you are talking about, hired by CNN, by ABC, by NBC, all these networks, as we know, are supported by the armament industry. And one has to go down to the lower ranges, the less public ranges, in order to get independent media in what uh, presents itself as a democracy. Democracy is not run by the armament industry, of course not. So having said that, what could Americans do? You see, I am one of those outsiders, not an American, very much wedded to the fantastic quality of the many Americans I know, generous, universalistic in their thinking, innovative, creative, extremely capable of working together. But what I find is exactly what you say, that people who are leaning in a progressive direction, have no political platform. Democrats should, of course, be that platform. And they were, under Franklin D. Roosevelt, to a large extent, whatever kind of details you can look into. But not under Clinton, and even less under Obama. Obama is to him a megalomaniac who thinks that he can bridge the gap that he can be sort of bipartisan, super-partisan, above-partisan, 
combining colors of the skin, combining inclinations religiously, being above Republican Democrats, and doing that by deserting those who voted for him, and leaning over backwards to take on board all kinds of Republican points, whereupon the Republicans, of course, do not vote for him anyhow. It's a strange game, and it's a very, very misunderstood game. Now, what ordinary Americans can do is forget about trying to make laws and to rule from Washington. Local initiative, local initiative, local initiative. There are states where this is more, and there are states where this is less possible. What would one do when one would, of course, start saving banks and simply draw the line between saving banks and investment banks, or would even boycott the investment banks? One would, of course, try to do anything to get the derivatives out where they belong, namely on the garbage heap of economic theory. Uh, when one thinks of the fact of the American economists who were behind that one, one can only say, what a dismal intellectual occupation. Instead of serving people, their basic needs, serving people by a kind of economy which is also carried by solidarity and love, caring for each other. Just serving money, 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 money. And of course, getting a Nobel Prize. It is actually not a Nobel Prize. It's a Swedish banking prize, to a large extent, given to them by those who themselves are trained that way. You would think in terms of cooperative as a natural way in which people come together and produce. And one would do that by sharing costs, risks, benefits, sharing it, and being that way willing to and able to take the vicissitudes and the ups and downs of the so-called market in a better stride. One would, of course, do what you indicated, namely alternative sources of energy. One could do all of that, and I could have a much longer list than this. I'm just waiting for the days where we see more initiatives of that kind. You find some of it in some parts of California. You find much of it in smaller New England states. But it has to spread. And I guess it will when the crisis comes and becomes even deeper. And the impotence of the Democrats, Democrats or Republicans at the top of the pyramid becomes even more even more clear. Let me interject another issue that segues what you just suggested. I see two other crises that are occurring, and I want to share quickly an overview of one solution. My solution would be to give every small qualified business person in the United States loans of up to $5 million, with every million dollars of that loan requiring two $30 an hour employees. The loan would be interest-free for three years and only 2%, the same that would be charged to a bank, and give them the same advantage we gave the bank. But based upon the number of small business people that need to expand their businesses or start businesses and then have only, no small business administration, but rather have, in every community in the United States, have a group of business people 
who would look to see what is qualified or not because there's no one better apt uh, to understand the value of a business uh, or not the value of a business than people who are in that business, not people who are bureaucrats in Washington looking at papers, not understanding this. So then let's say at the minimum we would have at least 5 million people. And if you average $3 million per person, that's 15 million jobs that you just uh, allowed to be uh, created. 15 million jobs is half of all the unemployment in the United States and at a gainful living at $30 an hour uh, plus uh, in uh, health insurance, people could actually survive. Then then you uh, also got, allow uh, foundations in inner city to work on non-gentrification, but rehabilitating inner cities, the ghettos, putting in schools and counseling centers and uh, free daycare centers and craft centers and art centers um, and food co-ops and gardens, uh, where in quality living, so person only give 15% of their income, so even a person on welfare or a poor person could now have a quality living space in a safe area because you would virtually de-ghettoize America. Thirdly, we're not doing anything uh, uh, for the farmers. We should take away all the corporate allowances we give to mega farmers, which is three hundred and fifty billion dollars to the mega farmers like Monsanto. Instead, we should help support that old notion of 40 acres and a mule, but make it 100 acres and for someone to grow organic and to support local economies and local farm production and get out of biofuels, especially in Montana and other places that we have more than enough land if we just grew it for produce for people. And the deal is, if you get the land for free, you have to live there and 25% what you farm that is harvested actually go to local food banks for free, so you're always supplying in every state. Then you can have reforestation. 15 million trees per state. By doing 15 million trees per state, you increase water tables, 22,000 gallons of water per large tree. You also uh, create carbon sinks and uh, minimize uh, global warming. You put young people to work, and that's another 3 million people you put to work. And then you cut the military-industrial complex by 80%. We need no more than $200 billion to effectively protect us. And you use the other $800 billion to repair, rebuild, and reconstruct all infrastructure that is in de- decay in the United States. And that those are just some of the ideas. And then you work on the enormous amount of uh, crime, especially I believe we should be legalizing the drugs and with treatment centers uh, so that you get away from the narco-terrorism in South America and Mexico. And uh, you also look at the gangs and the underlying cause of these gangs. There's 100,000 gang members in Chicago. There's over 1.1 million gang members in the United States, and that's going to triple in the next five years. And that means as you cut back fire department, police department, social services, and communities around the United States, which is happening now, then the gangs, 10% of whom have been in the military, are going to take advantage of that. And you're going to see an epidemic in crime that we have never seen in American history in the United States. States and it's happening now. Those are some That's thoughts. It's happening now, and they are coming back from the war fully traumatized. They're committing suicide and they're committing the crimes. And there is a veteran production of traumatized veterans, which will last for some time. What would you suggest now would be the solutions to America 
uh, the average American so that they can do what you suggest, work at the local level in making change. Buy American? How about that as a start? Getting their money out of uh, major commercial banks and into to credit unions and small savings and loans? What else can we do? Well, I think that you said it and put it very well and the kind of points that I made and your points go very well together. You are bypassing the banks, essentially, and the system that you were mentioned, where businessmen come in and they make the loans available, is a kind of, I won't say macro-credit, but it's a little bit similar to the micro-credit, which has lifted people up in a number of countries. This could be at a kind of in-between level, and I think very, very, very important. I'd just like to insert two more elements. You said local level, and I agree with that. I think the unit of development is not the whole country. That is too big. It's not the state. The unit is the community. The local community, it may be a municipality, it may be a federation of municipalities, it may be part of municipalities. Some of the U.S. municipalities are very, very big, and there are parts of them that could be much more useful. Then you enter into that with a combination of the private sector and the public sector and the civil civil society and, of course, professionals. You enter into it, and I think first priority for the tasks you do would have to do with basic needs. So I've just introduced those two words, basic needs. <coughs> and it goes, of course, exactly in the direction that you said. How do we produce food that is available to everybody? Could it be by having revived farms at the human level coming together on a cooperative basis and having a sales point where the thing is direct from the farm to the consumer? You will still have an enormous transportation capacity in the U.S. People can come to such point and pick up the foods. They don't have to have it packaged and made almost inevitable in order to have a long shelf life could be healthy food. You would do the same, of course, for housing. And here I think it is terribly important, again, that one finds a way whereby housing does not become just a buying and selling object. You were mentioning the housing bubble. Well, as we all perfectly know, People bought houses and they sold houses without any idea at all of living in them. They were just buying selling products. And of course, if you have enough buying, the prices will go up until the bubble bursts. And did it burst? And you get exactly the phenomenon that you mentioned. Then that people have mortgages that by far outdo the value of the house. Now, you would do the same for health. You would have people building small polyclinics for the most basic health needs. And they are relatively simple. And if they are available to common people all over the place, they will take care of the basic sicknesses that people are suffering from. Now, this has been said for developing countries for a long time. We just have to face that the way the USA is now heading it is to a large extent a developing country. And that also goes for education. And you could imagine that the kind of financing that you mentioned could finance jobs where people among the most needy would be building, in fact, 
the institution for basic needs that they themselves could use. In other words, lifting themselves up by the bootstraps at the bottom of society. We've had more than enough in the United States of America of lifting the people at the top so that the inequality index for United States is exploding. Where you have figures like a CEO earning 500 times, 1,000 times, 2,000 times that of the average worker at the bottom of the pyramid, which is a shame. It should be 10 times, 5 times. In other words, letting people come to get it. And not only by decreasing the salary at the top, by lifting them at the bottom. But for that to happen, the basic needs have to be satisfied. You have to get out of a situation where people, so many millions go hungry to bed, and so many millions, regardless of health insurance reform, will not be able to find the health care they need. So I think what you say is entirely realistic. I just try to add some commentary to it. I appreciate it. We're, we're out of time. Thank you very much, Professor Johan Galtung, from, for coming on and sharing your thoughts with us. They have provoked a lot of insight. I appreciate My it. My pleasure indeed, and I hope that it will turn in the way that we have been talking about. Let us hope so. Conversations with Remarkable Minds, the topic, the fall of the American Empire, from my guest, Johan G-A-L-T-U-N-G. I'm Gary Nall. Thank you all very much for listening.